Blessed John Paul II has touched the hearts and the minds of billions of people throughout the world, and his teachings will have a lasting impact on the church for generations to come. Join us today as we discover the wisdom of Pope John Paul II with our special guest, Dr. Alan Schreck, professor of theology at Franciscan University and author of the new book, The Legacy of Pope John Paul II. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Franciscan University Presents. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents, and our topic today is the legacy of Pope John Paul II. I'm joined here in our studios in Steubenville with our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the chair, Father Michael Scanlon Chair uh, in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Alan Schreck, Professor of, of Theology and Church History here at Franciscan University. Um, you also are, are a prolific author. Uh, you helped uh, found the uh, Defending the Faith Conference, a very popular conference. Uh, you've been teaching here since 1978, uh, and you're author of one of your popular books is Catholic and Christian. And the book we're going to be talking about today is The Legacy of Pope John Paul II. So, Alan, uh, welcome to the program. Good to be with all you yeah. gentlemen. Yeah. So, I, I guess the first to start us off today on our topic of the legacy of Pope John Paul II, uh, how did you become interested in, in the Pope and, uh, you know, what inspired you to, to really write this book? Well, Mike, you mentioned I, I started teaching here at Franciscan in 1978, and of course that was the year that John Paul became Pope. So. Throughout my teaching career, I, I feel like I've been a disciple of that great Holy Father and, of course, now of Benedict XVI. But uh, John Paul's teaching always inspired me. Uh, uh, I, when I went to Rome in 1987, I presented him a copy of the book you mentioned, Catholic and Christian. And uh, through the years, he's inspired me. I began to write a column in the Sower uh, magazine, which is an international catechetical journal. and. Uh, from that journal, I began writing um, my column series on the encyclical letters of John Paul. And uh, in the end, uh, the Catechetical Institute of Franciscan University of Steubenville invited me to collect those articles and to put it into a book on the legacy of John Paul II as seen through these 14 encyclical letters. And they've, they've inspired me, they've instructed me. Uh, lately, I do a senior seminar where for all our seniors we, uh, who take this seminar with me, they go through the 14 encyclicals, one a week, and they're getting inspired too and working hard because they're, 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 they're challenging. But uh, John Paul has always inspired me, and I think these encyclicals, in a sense, uh, provide some of the heart of his teaching. It's not everything he taught, but they're some of the key points of his pontificate that he wanted to communicate to the world. Yeah. You, you know, it's a sobering thought when you consider how threadbare our lives would be, our professional academic lives, if there hadn't been a Pope John Paul II. <laughs> yeah. What on earth would we yeah. be talking about? That's right. That's He's right. provided a lot of rich material. 
Yeah. He, it, he, it, it's an amazing corpus of writings that we find. It hasn't just inspired you and us, but the whole no, world. I mean, right. Catholic, Protestants, and beyond. You know, I, I remember discovering as a new Catholic when he was Pope that uh, encyclicals are really not just letters, but I mean, these are, these are important documents. I mean, uh, not everything has the same value. You, you have encyclicals, then you have all the, you know, the Wednesday audiences that he gave weekly. Uh, and in between, you have apostolic exhortations, apostolic letters. But, you know, way back in 1950, Pius XII pointed out that an encyclical can propose truth in a way that is really authoritative. And so it's a call for us, I think, to pay close attention, not only because this man is anointed and wise, but because these documents are authoritative. Right. And they're really yeah. given for the church's instruction. Right. These it, are the ones yeah. he selected of all of his writings to dignify with the title of an encyclical letter, these 14. That's it, the highest. I mean, the voice of God, the voice of the Spirit is mediated in a special way through that particular channel, that, yes. that, that forum. Yeah, and if, we, if we're looking at the, uh, the 14 encyclicals that, that uh, the Blessed John Paul II, where the Pope wrote, how, how does that kind of encapsulate, kind of in a, in a summary way, his legacy, his wisdom, what he wanted in part. Since he spent time, he realized there was only 14 of these during his, his, his right. uh, tenure as pontiff. Yeah. You never know whether he planned to write 14. Yeah. Probably the Holy Spirit just led him. But he came to the point, each of these are things that he wanted to, uh, as Regis was saying, he wanted to present these to the church as sort of the, the core, the heart of m many of the main things he thought the world needed to hear, both Catholics and, 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 and everyone in the world needed to hear. And uh, so there's a development. I think he, he, he well, let's look at the encyclicals. Yeah, yeah. Open up, how did he start and where did, where, what was the impetus well, for that? Well, yeah. you know, I, I think of our present Holy Father, Pope Benedict, a theme of faith, hope, and charity. And at the beginning, John Paul II began his first encyclical on the redeemer of humanity, a redemptor hominis. He starts with Jesus. And uh, Jesus is the summit, the heart of the message of Christianity. So he begins with Christ. Uh, he begins his pontificate speaking about who is Jesus Christ. It's, it's interesting in 2001, uh, beginning of the new millennium, after we celebrated this great jubilee year, which he was looking forward to uh, and preparing for, uh, in, in his uh, document on the new millennium, he has a chapter called Starting Afresh from Christ. Yeah. And that's how he started his pontificate with Christ. And now in the new millennium, we're starting afresh from yeah. Christ. And so he really proposes that also a key theme for him is the human person and the dignity of the human person. And of course, the key to understanding the human person is Jesus Christ. Right. He is the model of redeemed humanity. And uh, so that's suitable in, in a pope who wanted to talk about human dignity yeah. and the, the meaning of the person to start with. You know, we that. can't stress that enough, that, that the two themes are interchangeable, inseparable, that, that the meaning of man passes through the mystery of Christ. He yeah. shows us the face of man. I might add that uh, he took a, a line from, he was co-author, one of the authors of the Vatican II document on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium yeah. et Spes, yeah. and he quotes that document all the time in all of his teachings, including his encyclicals, but he, he has this one line, it's only in the mystery right. of the Word made flesh that the mystery of man becomes clear. Right, and Article 22. Article yes. 22, right. and, he, uh, and of course this encyclical is really an expansion of that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that material in Gaudium et Spes is so rich, you know, and you, you, you discover that insight from the fathers, too, that the glory of God is man fully alive with the, with the life of God. 
When you look at what uh, Blessed John Paul did, I, I think in some ways we're almost too close to the person, even though he's been dead for years, God rest his soul. We're, we're too close in history to recognize his monumental and unique significance. You know, and probably the best way to access his thought and to discover his importance is precisely through these encyclicals. I remember when I first read Redemptor Holiness, I was still a Protestant, and I, I picked it up and I read it, you know, coming from an evangelical background, seeped in scripture, and in covenant theology. That was my tradition as a Presbyterian. And everything was co-opted, you know, in a <laughs> glorious way. I mean, this thing was saturated with scripture from the old and the new. The covenant was central like a thread. And, it, and the way that he presented the, the Christological vision of our sharing in Christ's sonship, it was like, you know, if, if the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America that I had grown up in had ever published this, this would have been the runaway bestseller. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. He starts with Christ. And he, he had a plan from the beginning, in the beginning, to start with also talking about the Blessed Trinity. Yeah. Because uh, in his first five uh, encyclicals, uh, the first is on Christ. The second is on, it's called Divus and Misericordiae, rich in mercy. And it's really about the merciful love of the Father. Yeah. And so he says, you know, Jesus came to, to, to tell us about God. Who is he? He is Father. And, and the, the key theme of that is the mercy of God shown forth in the Father. And a key text in that, of course, is the prodigal son. And then uh, a, a couple encyclicals later, he completes this the triad by the Blessed Trinity by in issuing his fifth encyclical on the Holy Spirit. And all of these, sometimes people think, well, you know, this is heavy stuff, the Trinity. Yeah. But all of these encyclicals, they are challenging, but they're pastoral. They're, he's not just talking about the theological meaning of Father, Son, and Spirit in the, the inter-Trinitarian, but it's about what is Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit saying to us today? and the need, things we need to understand about them today uh, to, to enter into God's plan. You know, those three, and especially the first two, I think are some of the most readable of the 14. I mean, if, if people ask, where can I begin? I would say Redemptor Hominus, and yeah. then Dives and Misericordia, Redeemer of Man and Rich in Mercy. And, and both of them you could take to prayer. I mean, these are not just study documents. Uh, some of the later ones, like Veritatis Splendor in Moral Theology or right. Fides et Ratio in <coughs> Fundamental Theology, I mean, our grad students sometimes cut yeah. their teeth on that stuff. Yeah, yeah they're more yeah. challenging. I, I think the first encyclical is the most personal, the most yeah. impassioned. Right. And it reminds me of those letters that Ignatius of, uh, of Antioch wrote on his way to Rome where he was scheduled to die. I mean, they're, they're full of fire and passion. And, and the fact that, that here is a man who fell uh, hopelessly in love with Jesus. I mean, he's fired with the love of God. This ardor, I think, pours out uh, and, and overflows every page. And his insistence that really, in the end, the way to the Father is not a roundabout way. It goes right through the Son, where all the lines converge. Man and God, grace and nature, history and heaven. Everything, everything focuses on that still point which is, which is Christ. I, I wanted to say I, I was probably personally most moved in all the encyclicals by when he talks in Divis et Misericordiae about the, the merciful love of the Father. And of course, Jesus is mercy. He says yep. in that encyclical, Jesus is like the personification of mercy, of the mercy of the Father. But when the Father in that parable uh, you know, forgives the Son, it's sometimes people think of mercy as something, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll be merciful to you. Right, it's sort of right. demeaning. 
But he says that really the mercy of the Father in that parable restores you to value. Mercy is not something demeaning, but it's something that restores you to your full dignity. The, the father treated the son not as a slave or a servant, but as a son, even though he had sinned grievously. That's crucial, you know, because I think up until the time I read that encyclical, I always assumed that mercy was interchangeable with pity. Yes. Whereas yeah. mercy is precisely what reaches down and then raises up yeah. and restores dignity that is nothing less than divine. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that was also another life changer, a game changer. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes when people pity you, uh, they're patronizing you, right. they're right. dismissing you, and they're keeping you at an arm's length. They don't really want to engage you. They're fastidious and indifferent and aloof. But that's not at all uh, 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 exemplified by Christ. He incarnates that's this right. divine pity, this mercy. He is compassion. Yeah. And he shows this, as, uh, as Scott was saying about throughout the, the scripture, in the Old Testament, the Father is a Father of mercy. He forgives Israel no matter how far they fall or sin. He's faithful to his covenant. And of course, that's shown in Jesus. And it's shown, it points to the mercy of the Father. And he does word studies on Rahamim and yep. Hesed. It's just gorgeous. He goes through all of that. And he, yeah. and he shows really the, the contradiction of the, the angry, vengeful, uh, but balances justice and mercy in that. Yeah. When we look at, at, at Christ, why isn't it uh, intolerant to say that Jesus is the only path yeah. to salvation? Why, why is that? Yeah, I, I might, I, I, a couple weeks ago, I went to a uh, conference on the Second Vatican Council. And I'm tying this in because, you know, we hear a lot of Vatican II, and that's one of my specialties, but reconciling, sort of the church being reconciled to the modern world. And that's very true, that we are sort of reaching out to the modern world. But some, sometimes you get the ideas, well, we want to be conciliatory, but we don't really want to proclaim Christ as the only way because that might, you know, alienate non-Christians. Not politically correct. Not anyway. politically correct. But um, John Paul is so focused that, you know, Christ is the savior of, of humanity. He is the, the one who gives the person dignity and shows the way to the Father and, and shows us the meaning of life. And one of his encyclicals is later, of course, is Redemptoris Missio, on the mission of the Redeemer. And the first chapter of that, and it's on the missionary call and evangelization, and it, it, the first chapter of that is Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Right. And it right. wants to be upfront that the world needs the good news of, 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 of her Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so, uh, and it is a way that is not imposing this on, right. on the world, but inviting them to yeah. discover the beauty and that's, of the that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful distinction, uh, Alan. We don't impose uh, uh, faith, we right. propose that's it. That's we right. invite people to check it out, uh, see if it doesn't change your life. That's right. That's right. But in the process, yeah. we're not saying that no one, can, uh, no one can come to God apart from Christ. It's that right. no one comes to the Father but by me. Right. You know, so what we discover through Christ is this gift of divine sonship that unveils the mystery of divine fatherhood and suddenly redefine sonship, I, I should say redefine salvation, so that it's not, it's not just getting out of hell, it's entering into the inner life of the Trinity. That and nothing less is what we mean by salvation, and that's why it has to come through the Son of the Father. That's right, and that's the core of the encyclicals, the 14, but particularly these Trinitarian ones. Um, in the next segment, I'd like us to go into another core message of John Paul's uh, legacy in the encyclicals is the understanding of the human person. You're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us.
the reasons why I love John Paul II is his great phrase, do not be afraid, open wide the doors to Christ. And he said this when he was um, first elected Pope. And this is a theme throughout his papacy that we see, um, especially in the encyclical Redemptoris Missio, the mission of the Redeemer. He talks about how the church needs to be evangelistic and she has to go out and spread the gospel into everyone and open wide the doors to Christ. And therefore, we must go out and proclaim the gospel. My name is Michael Villanueva. I'm majoring in philosophy and theology. Last semester, I had sacraments with Dr. Hahn. And uh, I'll tell you right now, it was the best class of my entire life. At every class, I'm just knocked out of my chair. It hits me like a ton of bricks. The beauty of the truth that he's speaking to us. Something so simple, but so beautiful and so profound and so powerful. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Thank you for continuing to watch us here on Franciscan University Presents. Today we're discussing the legacy of John Paul II with author and professor Dr. Alan Schreck. Um, Alan, I know we want to get into the understanding of the human person from John Paul's encyclicals, but we did miss a topic uh, in our last segment on the Holy Spirit. He obviously dedicates a whole encyclical to this, and, and we couldn't be remiss uh, with the uh, third person of the Trinity here. So if you could help us out just a little bit yeah. of uh, understanding from John Paul. Well, sometimes the Holy Spirit is the forgotten or mysterious <laughs> person of the Trinity, but it's very interesting. This encyclical, and uh, Scott was mentioning it's longer than the, 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 the one on the Father and the Son, but the, one of the focuses on this pastoral uh, encyclical on the Holy Spirit is the second section always struck me. It's on a passage from John's Gospel that the Spirit uh, convinces the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And he talks about the activity of the Holy Spirit, especially within the human conscience, and how, um, first of all, he, he quotes uh, 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 Pius XII, who said, the greatest sin of the century, of 20th century, is the loss of the sense of sin. Mm. And he talks about the Holy Spirit uh, also raises our awareness that we need salvation, we need grace. And he convicts us of sin, he shows us our sin, but he talks about the Holy Spirit as a double gift, the gift of conviction, but the second part is he gives us an assurance and the power to overcome sin, yeah. that, that the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us to Jesus and to the Father and who gives us the power to overcome uh, sin, first by making us aware that we are sinners and the world needs redemption, and then by giving us the power to actually overcome sin. And he talks about the need of the Holy Spirit, of course, in this age of evangelization to proclaim the good news. But uh, it, he does, speak here about the Holy Spirit revealing the meaning of the person as being one who is uh, alienated from God by sin but redeemed by Christ and pointing us to the source of that redemption in Christ and the Father's mercy. Okay. So if we go now to the human person, how, Regis kind of referenced this earlier, you know, how does Christ reveal man to himself in such a way that it makes his supreme calling that much more real or, or uh, relevant uh, to him? Well, the, the theme, Michael, the theme of the human person runs all the way through all of encyclicals. One of the things I noted, there are some encyclical letters that are dealing with the, the place of the human person in the modern world. So there's a set of his encyclicals that I would consider his social encyclicals. Um, they begin with his encyclical on human work, laborum exertions, and of course, there the personalist emphasis is what is work is 
it, it, it is not what work you do, but it's a person yeah. who does the work right. that gives yeah. work dignity. Yeah. Then, and, and he expands on this in some of the other social encyclicals on uh, social concerns, solicitudo re socialis is sort of a broader view of social concerns, but it's society and these social concerns is meant to serve the good of the individual person. It's not, you know, it's not that it's, this, it's, it's not this view that the person is just a cog for the greater right. good of society, but he, is, he has to serve the common good, the person, but the society must ensure that human rights and dignities are protected. And of course, his final, so, well, he has a couple others that might be called social encyclicals, Centissimus Annus, on the 100th anniversary of Rerum Novarum, the first modern social encyclical by Leo XIII, where he talks about the rights of workers and connecting again the need for the individual to be um, having uh, the dignity and rights of workers protected. And finally, even his encyclical on, on human life, Evangelium Vitae, the gospel of life. Of course, that's about the dignity of human life from the moment of conception until death. So yeah. I look upon those as having to do with the person in terms of the person in society. And, and the, the, the human person is the reason and the key for understanding what human society and human activity is about. Yeah. And I think when you look at that from, from a sense of he, he's coming from the lived personally through Nazism, communism, he's seen man treated as a cog. As right. Yeah. I mean, this is and, and, and this, this accounts for why he is so drawn to the example of men like Maximilian Kolbe, the great patron, he says, of the 20th century, because he showed us how to be human. Uh, in, in, in the midst of, 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 of horror, massive systemic uh, extermination, torture, genocide, the degradation of, of man. Maximilian Kolbe rises above it. He's triumphant, uh, all because he's riveted upon Christ. I, I think that Christological theme runs through everything. I, I come to know who I am, what I'm supposed to do, only as a consequence of learning who is Christ and what has he done for me? Yeah. You know, besides Colby, there's another Pole who figures prominently in his thinking on dignity and mercy, and that is St. Faustina. Uh, because there you can see not only the theme of divine mercy, but also of what gift we receive in Christ. You know, this is where John Paul is drawing from his immense wisdom and, 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 and great training, because you know, you go back in Genesis, which he always did. Yes. Uh, in Genesis 2, verse 7, you know, man is formed from the dust of the ground to kind of denote our own humble origins, literally, humility. And yet God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, you know. And this divine breath is what confers upon us something more than oxygen. I mean, this is the Holy Spirit. This is supernatural life. This is divine grace. We're already anticipating a share in Christ. Christ is already stamping his own image in the one who bears the image. And so to restore that is really to show man himself as he was created in the image and likeness of God, but to show that man was never conceived by God apart from Christ. Right. Yeah. Also, if I could pick up in Genesis, where as you rightly say, he's always going back to the beginnings. For example, the understanding of human work, you know, yes, it's yeah. not just a curse, but it's part of our dignity to have dominion over the earth and to, to, to subdue it for the good of all. And in Genesis 2, before the fall, in right? 3. Even before yeah. the fall, work is, is seen as a positive yep. thing. And, but also the context of man created not to be alone, but to be 
in society. And the family, of course, really is a key theme that comes out. Is uh, he, he always goes back to not only do we preserve the dignity of the person, but these social structures must also um, foster the good of the family. Um, and, and for example, in laborium exertions, you, you should be able to have a wage suitable to raise your family. And uh, some of the other social encyclicals, workers have rights because they, 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 they must provide for their family. Yeah. So it's, and, and of course, also providing and looking toward the common good of society. So even in Genesis, man is not alone. And, and that theme of it's the person relationship to Christ, but also relationship to these social institutions, yeah. especially the, the The enemy here, I think, as always, is reductionism, uh, that, that you're somehow what you do. You're reduced uh, to a cog in a machine. And the pope, with, with great courage and, and consistence, opposed this. And he felt it in his own bones when he was subject to that kind of uh, reductionist uh, tyranny, first under the Nazi occupation, then the Soviet menace. He understood, really, the acids of the 20th century, That's but right. they weren't going to dissolve him. He was determined right. to rise above that. If I could just add here that um, the, some of his encyclicals, like Solicitude Res Socialis, they will compare um, the, the evils and the, and the dangers of socialism in different forms. Yeah. He also turns around and criticizes uh, capitalism right. if it becomes sort of the, uh, he calls this, um, that, that we are sort of in this consumer mentality right. Right. And, and the sense of, so uh, the church does not identify with any one form of social or political structure. But John Paul does what the church should be doing, is looking at them all and seeing the potential of, 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 of value and also the dangers. But the reason I think he gives, it's not just, well, I want to kind of posture myself as a moderate. You know, individualism is just wrong, and right. collectivism is wrong. Right. But right. the family, rooted in marriage, and then the dignity of the man as male and female, I mean, this is precisely the truth that is able to draw whatever insights you have on both sides. But I'd also say this, that when I first read Centissimus Annus, I was surprised because more than the earlier social encyclicals, like Rerum Novarum and Quadradecimal Anno, he is affirming the importance of freedom yes. in society. Yes. Yes. And while he doesn't give, he never endorses unbridled capitalism, the free market is, 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 is not just something that he nods to, but he recognizes that the dignity of the person and the freedom of exchange is at the foundation of the market. Well, he gives it a privileged status, I, I think. It's, yeah, it's no, no morally normative. Right. A, a the virtuous free market. Yeah, that, That's you, right. that you acknowledge that, that, that there is something sovereign about, about man, about the individual, and that he, he has a, a he right. Does. He ought to be at liberty to make choices. Yeah, and right, he does right. speak positively about democracy. It's not yeah. the only possible sure. system, right. but he right. reaffirming the, because democracy intrinsically values freedom. Right, and we'll get to more of this later, but with, with the reality is a democracy without the vows, with the moral underpinnings of a society, and not the understanding of human, the human person, because that's, that's what his crux is, at least as we're talking in these encyclicals. He, it's the human he, he person a, that's at the center. A, a, a lovely line. I think he may have delivered it at the UN. He said, if you exclude Christ from the history of, of humanity, you do violence to man because the history of every man 
literally unfolds from within Christ, even for those who are unaware of Christ. He often quotes a a, a line, something that, a phrase from Paul VI, the civilization of love. Sort of like his encyclicals, these social encyclicals are not political statements. They're teaching about the nature of man, the nature of society, and the goal is he, he, he does refer to the civilization of love. And connected with that is, and of course, love is the key. We have to have a society structured on seeking the good of others. That's the meaning of the common good. He also uses, of course, the phrase, the civilization of love is also a culture of life. He yeah. says, man, human, humanity creates culture. And the culture we can create can be a culture which is beautiful, a civilization of love and a culture of life. But of course, he also points out we see around us so often an anti-civilization of love and a culture of death. Right. So there is a struggle here. Yeah, and I think those are two phrases that I think are, are interwoven uh, throughout his pontificate, the civilization of love and the culture of life. I think too many people forget that he coined that phrase that's yeah. now often used out right. there, the culture of life. I mean, that means so much more than just his, being. His unremitting defense of the dignity of the human person. I mean, you, you could always count on Pope John Paul II to, to be on the side of, of life. That's right. I mean, there, there's a passage I, I think that George Weigel quotes where a, a, a bunch of priests were saying, look, you know, it's really difficult to preach against abortion. People get upset. And he said, look, a, a society that kills its children has no future. That's, I mean, that's, that, right. that's wonderful. Oh, that's yeah, categorical yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I think he provides something else that I found and still do find very, very helpful. In fact, absolutely necessary. Because in a certain sense, you could argue as a conservative individualist for the dignity of the individual, uh, and, and thus a culture of life and a civilization of love. But what he continually said was that civilization passes by way of the family. Yes. And you know, That's that the, the emphasis that you find in all of these documents on the family, you know, of course the most fundamental human right is the right to life, and yet equally fundamental, he points out in many places, is the right of the human person to be born as the fruit of marital love. And I think that is key in our society with many of the cultural and moral issues. But why is the family so important? Why is it so central? Uh, you know, in John Paul's uh, thoughts. Well, I mean, Gaudium et Spes in Vatican II, you know, says many t- number of places that the family is the basic unit of human society. And of course, from Scripture, we know, you know, this is God's plan. It's yeah, God is a family. <laughs> that's right. That's right. By Based the Trinity, the very triune. foundation. Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting because the first time he came to America, he gave a talk in Puebla that I read as a seminarian where he said, God in his deepest mystery is not a solitude, but a family. Yes. Because he has in himself fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of the family, which is love, refer- referencing the Holy Spirit. I did a double take. What was that? You know, yeah. this is not just metaphorical. It really is a sense in which when man is made, male and female, man is made in the marital covenant to form a family precisely to image God. Right. Now that mystery is not unveiled until the Father sends the Son to give us the Spirit to enter into his family. But I mean, at one level, this is so lofty, and yet at another level, this tells us who we are as family. This is not biological, this is really theological. That's right. and, 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 and the core that, of who we are. And, and exactly. that Trinitarian mystery is not really replicated fully in the life of, of human couples until they have children, or at least they remain open to life. And yeah, as that's you the key. have often yeah. said, Scott, after nine months, you've got to give this love a, a name. name. That's right, right, that's right. And that is the, the essence of the human person. In our next segment, uh, I hope you join us because we'll be going into the, the call of John Paul to hope and a challenge for all of us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us.
John Paul II always spoke up against oppression. Uh, he spoke up, didn't matter what country people were from, it didn't matter what their religious background was, he defended their God-given rights. It was Blessed John Paul II uh, during his papacy and his great encyclical, The Gospel of Life, who identified the phrase culture of life and, and stressed how important it was for every Christian to evangelize the culture. And that's, that means politics, it means art, it means entertainment, every aspect of human culture. He was uniquely prepared to do that. He was prepared all his life keeping the culture of his native country alive when it was under attack from the tyranny of the Nazis and then the communists. John Paul lived um, keeping the culture alive. He lived the gospel of life and has set an example for us all. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land. Poland, France, and Italy, and you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily Mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu pilgrimages. Watching Franciscan University presents. Uh, this entire program springs forth from the heart of Franciscan University. This entire program is taped and recorded right here in the Communication Arts Studio at Franciscan University. Our students are operating the equipment and the cameras. Um, our professors here, Dr. Regis Martin and Scott Hahn, are our regular panelists. Um, Alan, we've been talking about the, the legacy of John Paul II, his 14 encyclicals. And uh, maybe you could just give us a summary of some of the remaining ones uh, that we haven't covered already right. uh, before we go into the final uh, parts. Well, of course, the one thing that's impressive about our whole, late great Holy Father is the breadth of his thought and his concern and his interest, as broad as the church and the, the broad as Christ. Um, I know we won't be able to discuss all of them, and, and I hope my book, will, which basically summarizes key points, will be of help to some people. The ones we haven't talked about, a couple of them have to do with the mission of the church in the world. I mentioned Redemptoris Missio and the mission of the Redeemer to reaffirm the, the proclamation of the gospel that this is an, a necessity because Christ is the Redeemer of humanity, of all peoples. Uh, another encyclical is uh, his 12th encyclical was on Christian unity. It's from the Latin phrase, ut unum sint, the Jesus' prayer in John's Gospel, Father, may they all be one, that they all may be one. And this was a passionate concern of John Paul throughout his pontificate. It has been picked up by Pope Benedict as well from the Council, of Vatican Council, that we really are not doing the will of God until we restore the full visible unity of all Christians. And this is the prayer of Christ to the Father. And so it should be, he says, uh, Christian unity is not some sort of an appendix tacked on right. yeah. to the mission of the church. It's intrinsic to the very life of the church. Then he, um, he has a couple of encyclicals that I'm sure we're going to get into on that these are, as, as Professor Hans, Dr. Hans said, uh, the Veritatis Splendor on the Splendor of the Truth, which has to do with especially the foundations of our moral understanding, Catholic and Christian morality, and, and how important that is today. And of course, Fidus et Ratio, uh, of course, being at a university, this is our, our tr trade here, the union of faith and reason. 
and as he sort of expands from Vatican I, which talked about faith and reason, and now we have uh, his presentation of the unity of faith and reason. And the last two that uh, I mentioned that were, were somewhat later, including his last encyclical, are, well, Mary was one of his first encyclicals. We all know his passionate devotion and love for our Blessed Mother. And so he has a, a, an encyclical, Redemptoris Mater, on the mother of the Redeemer, and how, this, how she is the mother of all people, and, and certainly of all Christians, and, and her special role, especially presenting her as a woman of faith. That seems that scripture, blessed is she who has believed that the promises of the Lord would be fulfilled, which Elizabeth says of Mary. And finally, his last encyclical, close to his death, the time of his passing, was on the Eucharist. Yeah. And you know, there, one thing I want to say about all the encyclicals is, they're all, even the ones that have to do with the mission of the church in the world, there's a depth of interiority here. He's always talking about the need for personal conversion. For example, in ecumenism, we can't have ecumenism until we have a change of heart. And, and, and we can't change the world unless there's interior yeah. conversion. You know, and the soul of that is the Eucharist that right. we draw close to. That, that's a striking paradox because here we are talking about uh, all of these encyclicals. You know, Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, John Paul II has given us the Mount of Sermons. And <laughs> rivers of, of words. And yet, at the heart of all that, is the stillness and silence of prayer. He was a man of profound prayer, rooted uh, in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have seen him, uh, who have been privileged to attend his private mass, that's what strikes one, right. uh, his yeah. silence, his recollection. Uh, I mean, Father Michael could hear a certain groaning of the spirit, but uh, I didn't pick up on that. But certainly a stillness. Uh, uh, he, he is anchored uh, to God. And out of that, uh, there flows this great, uh, this great uh, uh, ocean of, of words. And they're all, I, I think, fired uh, by this, uh, this prayerful attachment uh, to God. You know, I was in that chapel three times, and the first time I did hear what Father Michael Scanlon uh, referred yeah, to, and that's yeah. the sighs yeah. and the moans too deep for words. I think I was distracted the by, by the screams of my children, yeah. <laughs> even there. But you know, what that points to is not some kind of disembodied spirituality, yes. because that interiority actually enabled him to embrace the truth of what it means to be enfleshed. Right. You know, and so often we recognize that the theology of the body in so many ways is the legacy, or at least one of the most important parts of the legacy. Even though he didn't write an encyclical devoted to the theology of the body, I mean, almost as soon as he began poping, as it were, back in 78, he began years of Wednesday audiences, the instruction that ended, I think, from 79 to 85. Right. Right. You know, and then when he wrote Veritatis Splendor, The Splendor of the Truth, that was sort of like the foundation because you know, he, he lifted our vision to see that the body is a kind of sacrament of the person. And so it, it leads not to a theology of sex so much to a, the, the theology of love, you know, self-gift. Once again, that's rooted in a line from Gaudi Metzvez uh, that he helped author. It's an article, article 24, where it's only um, that we discover our true self only in the sincere gift of self, which yes, I always say right. is the, the, really the heart, of the, the heart of the theology of the body. Yeah. And I've often thought, as you said, you know, why didn't he make theology of the body an encyclical? I think he realized that this is something where he was maybe breaking a little yeah. new It's ground. a work in progress. It's right. a work in That's progress. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so maybe uh, this is part of his legacy, though. And I, I minded one other thing about meeting him. You've, you've mentioned your time. When I met him, of course, I went to the Mass. But uh, the thing of 
Everyone who's ever met John Paul II knows that when you meet with him personally, it's like you're the only one in the world. Right. He, he sees you with the eyes of love. I remember thinking, boy, if this is what it means, if this is what it's like to meet Christ, right. everything I suffer in this world to follow Christ will be worth it if I experience even a, 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 a taste of the, if yeah, I experience right. just a taste of that love of Christ. That, that single intensity of attention yeah. right, that he right. pays. Right. Yeah. And so when, when we hear, I, I kind of like the way we talked about that, that he started with uh, Christ the Redeemer, ended his, his encyclicals with the Eucharist, his everlasting presence with us, uh, but he called us to take the sacred into the secular. Right. He ta he, he, what did John Paul II say to Catholics? Uh, what did he teach us about going into the modern world, into the secular world uh, in his encyclicals? Well, when we get back to so, mon so many things, but in Veritatis uh, Splendor, the splendor of the truth, it, it's heavy, but it's like he's saying we, we're, we're in a world that has sort of lost its moorings and, and the basic understanding of truth, basic understanding of uh, absolute values and moral values. And, and he, he doesn't, again, impose this, but he gives this cogent argument that, that to be fully human is to, to recognize the morality which is rooted in our, uh, in our very person. To, to realize our rationality, that we're people who, who are made to have faith, but we're also people who uh, are people with, with reason, and the two are not opposed. Yeah. You know, that, that particular encyclical, though, wasn't just talking about all of the problems in the world because it's lost its moorings, but the problems in the church. Yeah. Because, I mean, some of the most influential Catholic moral theologians, Fuchs, Herring, Curran, McCormick, and it goes on, you know, proportionalism, the fundamental option. They were finding so many loopholes that you could drive trucks through, you know, to, you know, mortal sin became almost as difficult as heroic virtue used to be, you know, and the, uh, the way he corrected it was so profound. It wasn't easy to do and it wasn't easy to read. But boy, I tell you, it really did dislodge what I took to be something that was immovable. I mean, I taught moral theology, I had done a doctoral seminar on moral theology, and I thought, well, in a century, it might be gone. In 10 years, it was gone. Right. Is that the encyclical that, that he adorns with that little vignette from the New Testament about the rich young man who goes away sad? Because Jesus invites him uh, you know, to a life which is far greater than simply observing all the rules, yeah. uh, you know, a kind of prohibition-based right. right. morality. You know, it's a life that's opening up. That's, he, the, that's, a, that's, that's the right one, and yeah. He, it is, and he weaves scripture in all the time as, oh. as, as key texts. And, and in, in, in this, um, he, he's pointing out in that in uh, Veritatis Splendor, I think I've lost my thought. Go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, another, another encyclical, which you did touch on, the one on ecumenism, that's not a sideshow. And I think that, that is characterized by the great hope that really sustained this man, that despite a millennium of divisions, the new millennium, this millennium, I, I think uh, uh, is an augury, a premonition of that unity in the spirit towards which we all move the, in hope. The key concept of Vatican II was communion, communion, yep. true communion in God. And, and his encyclicals do, you know, the need not just for Christian unity, yeah. but for human unity, that there is a truth that can bring us, that does bring right. us life, right. is the foundation of human society, of our understanding of the person. Uh, and, and so I would say if there's one key theme that runs through his letters besides the human person, it's the idea of communion. Communion, which is rooted in communion with right, God. Right, right. 
but then extends yeah, to the communion of persons. But, but for me, the real springboard of, of, of his life uh, uh, is, is this virtue of hope. That's the launching pad. And he, he really does say, in effect, look, we can do better. Uh, we can anneal ourselves to Christ. And, and we'll find that all of these divisions fall away and we'll be one just as Jesus and the Father are one. That, that's, that's, you know, that's sort of over the top. Yeah. There's you know, almost so many things we could cover. I, I wonder if we could even just talk briefly about Fidius ad Ratio, the faith and reason, since that's yeah. key to oh, our yeah, life at yeah. the university. We've yeah. obviously launched a website, sure. Faith and Reason. But what is John Paul II? I mean, many people uh, want to separate the two and say they have nothing to do with one another. Right. Yeah. yeah. One thing real yeah. quickly, when we speak about faith and reason, this, this encyclical fetus at Ratio, I think we ought to warn our readers, on the one hand, pick it up and read it, but on the other hand, don't expect something easy breezy, because it's a lot like Veritatis Splendor. I mean, these are two encyclicals that really stand out. When I give them to graduate students, you know, they encyclicals, you know, and when they're halfway through it, they're like, encyclical, you know, it's deep, it's beautiful. I might say in my book, I spend more time on those two than any other yeah, course, because they need to be unpacked. Yeah. And, yeah. and I hope you know, my book might be and other resources Good entree. might be helpful. But faith and reason, I mean, the fundamental truth that is in there is, is something the church has always taught. Thomas Aquinas and, and the whole scholastic tradition is, is the unity of faith and reason. The two are not opposed. So at a university, you know, we're, we're, we're delving into the mysteries of creation through reason but it's enlightened by faith, that faith is, uh, gives us a fuller vision of reality. And, 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 that's, and, and the world often lacks that when they reject faith. But with yeah. faith, we have a better way of, of viewing the truth of, of reality and, yeah. and, of, and, and, and of ourselves. Yeah, and, and reason really does have a lofty mission uh, in, in, in the economy of, of, of grace. It, I mean, at, at most, it has to acknowledge its own limitations. It can carry us so far. And then there's the threshold of mystery uh, into which only revelation can carry us. But reason is noble and necessary. It, it, it's not, and, and the disconnect has to be overcome between faith and reason. They're not, they're not discontinuous. I mean, they're harmonious, but the leap off the page eventually comes when you embrace of, of, of revelation. You know, when you consider the quarter of a century and beyond, because he was pope for more than a quarter of a century, but that, that time period was the most critical because Vatican II had been up for grabs when it ended in 65 and, and Paul VI published Humanae Vitae in 68, but that was the last encyclical he ever published. You know, he died 10 years later, but without doing another one because, well, you, you know, I can understand. Right. But when John Paul became the pope, you know, Vatican II was just like a barroom brawl. What does this really mean? He was the one who kind of embodied the hermeneutic, the way to interpret this in continuity and yet at the same time to see what was new. I, I might say in defense of Paul VI, he was heroic in his... Heroic, in, absolutely. In his, his, his attempt to clarify Vatican II, but you're right. I, I wanted to get back, if I had a last word on this, I want to echo Regis what he said about hope, that, you know, so many things in the world today seem hopeless. And, and uh, Christian unity, can it ever happen? And uh, yeah. the world that seems to be, you know, in almost apostasy, even within the church, as you said. 
But the, he was the Pope who exemplifies the virtue of hope, which is a special grace of the Holy Spirit. And, mm -hmm. and I've been very blessed to be able to study this, to discover in these encyclicals that essence of hope. That's great. Uh, in our final segment, we'll be wrapping up this great discussion of the legacy of Pope John Paul II. You're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. My favorite teaching by John Paul II was his Theology of the Body because it answered life's deepest questions like who am I and what's my purpose in life. It really restored my dignity as a human being and especially as a woman. His motto was be not afraid and this was so evident in his Theology of the Body because he wasn't afraid to teach the truth. One of Blessed John Paul's great acts was to make in 1997 St. Therese of Lisieux the youngest and the 33rd doctor of the church. And in his um, apostolic writing, um, he singled out above all her attitude of littleness before the merciful love of God and her total abandonment to this merciful love of God as something for all faithful to imitate. My name is Kelly Butler and I'm a communication arts major. I took independent digital filmmaking. Definitely intense. Many all-nighters in the editing lab getting things done. Pope John Paul II has a quote, Do not be afraid to go out into the streets and into public places to preach Christ like the first apostles. That's what we're called to as Catholics and as Christians. You have that responsibility that every work you create should reflect Christ. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. final segment of Franciscan University Presents where we've been discussing the legacy of Pope John Paul II with uh, author and professor Dr. Alan Schreck. It's our time now to kind of wrap up and bring uh, a conclusion to this great conversation. Right, yeah. Regis, could you start us off? Yeah, I mean, where do we close? Uh, where <laughs> do we begin? I mean, he's sort of like St. Augustine, like the ocean. Uh, where do you jump in? Uh, he had the status of, uh, of a rock star. I mean, he was a celebrity. Uh, he, more people had seen him than anybody else on the face of, uh, of the globe. He had been to every continent except maybe Antarctica. <laughs> so I guess the penguins had not seen him. But five million people in Manila had queued up to see this man. That, that's, a, that's extraordinary. And, and there are so many benchmarks uh, to his pontificate. He gave us five new mysteries of the rosary, the luminous mysteries. That, that seems fitting because he was so immersed in the life of, of Christ. He canonized, what, about 500 people? He could have canonized himself and that would have been just as plausible. <laughs> he was an extraordinary man. Uh, uh, when, when he died, there were so many eulogies and I remember reading one in particular which uh, quoted the poet Stephen Spender who, strangely enough, didn't know the Pope and was an atheist. But, but this poem, I think, applies uh, to the Pope. Uh, Spender says, I think continuously of those who were truly great. Born of the sun, they traveled a short while toward the sun and left the vivid air signed with their honor. Their lips were touched with fire. And that certainly was true, not just of Isaiah, but of Karol Vatiwa, a remarkable man who embodied 
uh, uh, the spirit of, uh, of faith, hope, and love. And from his legacy, I think we, we all stand as beneficiaries. Scott. Well, as Regis pointed out, he canonized many people, more than all of his predecessors combined, as yeah. a matter of, of, of historical fact. He also traveled more than all of his yeah. predecessors combined in over 100 apostolic journeys. In fact, his predecessor, Paul VI, had already broken that record, then it was broken still by more than 10 times. I'd like to focus for a moment upon the new evangelization, because I think that's a huge part of his legacy. And that also embodies the continuity from Vatican II, which used ev evangelize more than 200 times. Paul VI, continuity with him, because in the mid-70s, he was the one who really launched this in 74, 75, so that now when John Paul was calling for the new evangelization, especially in 1990 with Redem Missio, the mission of the Redeemer, uh, this is precisely what Pope Benedict has picked up on, you know, and this explains what he was doing and why he was doing it and when, that the 90s for him represented what he called the Advent season of the new evangelization. You know, so when Pope Benedict called for it to be resumed, people thought, well, you know, are you jump-starting a dead battery? No. This was always a long-term project. Uh, what the Advent season is to the whole liturgical year, the 90s would be for the new evangelization. This was something that was intended by John Paul to continue on to the next century and maybe the whole century that we're in. And so I just want to show that, you know, this, this man didn't just call for it. He incarnated evangelization arguably more than anybody since Paul, you know, the apostle. And I think this is the challenge that uh, a man in his mid-80s has picked up on and called for all of us to share in as well. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And Alan, your final thoughts? Well, uh, to, to build on what my colleagues have said here, I want to pick up on this evangelization of the mission of the church, you know, the boldness in proclaiming in whatever culture, in whatever situation, in every political arena, Jesus Christ is as the Savior and the hope that we have in Christ our Savior and led to him through our Mother Mary through, and, and encountering him in the Eucharist. Uh, one personal thing that um, I want to thank John Paul, and I'm sure he's listening right now, I want to thank him for his, his youthful spirit. You know, all of us are getting a little gray hair around here, and I've been at, we've all been at this, uh, our profession, but I still feel so young, and I'm young because I look at John Paul, you know, I, I, the image I have of him is, you know, when in those latter days when he was still able to walk, but he'd had this cane, and he, he sort of waved the cane like, what's this thing for, you know? And he, he was young because he saw, first of all, his reaching out, we didn't mention, to the youth. He invented, he World founded Day. World Youth Day. Yeah. And he, he realized that, you know, the church herself, even as though she is ancient, is ever young. Mm -hmm. And so he appealed to the youth to use their youthful energy to build up the, the church to be the vanguard of this new, he, he's called them, I think, the morning watchmen of the new evangelization mm -hmm. uh, to young people. But even so, those of us who are older, I think we can pick up on, the, on, on this uh, youthful spirit. One, one thing that has helped me in my life is he always encouraged wherever the Holy Spirit was working. I've been part of a renewal movement my whole life, pretty much since, my, uh, since college days. And in 1998, he called on the year of the Holy Spirit to prepare for the Great Jubilee. He called all the ecclesial movements together. And it was, uh, they say it's probably the largest single gathering in Rome. There was over a million, half a million people, half a million people were gathered. And he encouraged them, you know, 
opening it. This is a sign for our age. The new evangelization is breaking forth because look around in the mainstream of the church but with these new movements and we look at the young churches of Africa and Asia, we can see that uh, I think that he, just by his own spirit, lent this vitality of faith that is just overwhelming and, and it certainly encouraged me. And as I say, because of him, I still feel, uh, that I've been at this a long time, but I feel excited and youthful about moving ahead as long as the Lord gives us power to do that. Wow. Well, Alan, thank you for uh, your many years of service here at Franciscan University and for writing this great book, uh, The Legacy of John Paul II. Uh, this is a great uh, primer, a great teaching tool. It's the first book of the Catechetics Institute here at the university. It's got questions and so forth at each of the chapters to really go deeper into this. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's topic uh, on the legacy of John Paul II as a free handout at faithandreason.com or just for asking, we have the introductory chapter that gives a great summation uh, for the book and for the uh, 14 encyclicals um, of our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II. Uh, this, is, this is a great topic. This is something that really truly lives on. And um, I really look at, at our Holy Father, uh, Blessed John Paul II, uh, his whole message of be not afraid. Uh, as still echoing today uh, in his encyclicals, in his message, uh, be not afraid, rely on the mercy of God, rely on the faith of Jesus Christ, uh, but, but, but also go out into the marketplace, uh, in your families, in your communities. Uh, don't be afraid of being faithfully Catholic and, and bold in our faith. Our faith has so much to bring to society today. Um, and, and don't fall into the trap of people thinking that faith and reason are somehow uh, in opposition or that we can't proclaim the saving message of Christ. Be not afraid. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI talks about the, the dictatorship of relativism. Be not afraid. Go out and speak. Um, it has been a pleasure today discussing this topic. Um, I hope you'll join us again in the future. Uh, Franciscan University presents Springs Forth from the Heart of Franciscan University. Um, we invite you to be a part of that mission uh, by uh, taking your uh, studies here with us, either here on campus or through distance learning. Or maybe join us at one of our summer conferences. Alan started one of our very popular ones that Scott's hosting as well, uh, Defending the Faith. Uh, visit us online at faithandreason.com. There are great videos and resources for the new evangelization and more on topics like today. Thank you for watching Franciscan University Presents. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381, or call 740-283-6357.